Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. 1.8 billion. That's, that's hard to comprehend that many Bibles over 100 years. Thank you so much for what you're doing and for your ministry. Let me pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to sing and to worship and to pray and, and just, to, just to focus on you, Father. I pray for our time together as we open the text of Scripture. I pray you'd speak truth to our lives and to our hearts. I pray we'd be challenged by what we read I pray, Father, you would be glorified, and I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit speaking to us, Lord, that we would be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Irma Bombeck was a very famous American author in the mid-1900s. Some of you are very familiar. She wrote a lot about families and a lot about parenting. I came across an article about her written in the mid-1990s, and in that article it quotes her poem, A Mother's Love. I'm going to read it to you. Irma Bonbeck says, Someday when my children are old enough to understand the logic that motivates a parent, (laughs) I will tell them, I loved you enough to ask where you were going, with whom, and what time you would be home. I loved you enough to insist that you save your money and buy a bike for yourself, even though we could afford to buy one for you. I loved you enough to be silent and let you discover that your new best friend was a creep. (laughs) I loved you enough to make you take a Milky Way bar back to the drugstore with a bite out of it and tell the clerk, I stole this yesterday and I need to pay for it. I loved you enough to stand over you for two hours while you cleaned your room, a job that would have taken me 15 minutes. I loved you enough to let you see anger, disappointment, and tears in my eyes. Children must learn that their parents are not perfect. I loved you enough to let you assume the responsibility for your actions, even when the penalties were so harsh they almost broke my heart. But most of all, I loved you enough to say no when I knew that you would hate me for it. Those were the most difficult battles of all. I'm glad I won them because in the end, you won too. She goes on in the article to say this, and I I love this idea. She says, I see children as kites. You spend a lifetime trying to get them off the ground. You run with them until you're both breathless and they crash. You add a longer tail. You patch and you comfort. You adjust and you teach. And assure them that someday they will fly. Finally, they are airborne, but they need more string. And you keep letting it out. With each twist of the ball of twine, the kite becomes more distant. You know it won't be long before that beautiful creature will snap the lifeline that bound you together and soar, free and alone. Only then do you know that your job is done. You know, we understand the love of a parent for a child, don't we? And we understand the amount of nurture and the amount of training and the amount of providing and the amount of protecting that goes into raising a child. We saw a very interesting phrase last week as we studied 1 John chapter 3. We, we saw that God loves us so much, the Bible says, that he calls us his children. He loves us so much that he gives us all the rights and the privileges that go with being his children. But here's a very interesting thing about God's love. It doesn't just end there. 
John's going to continue this theme of love, and he's going to take us to kind of a different place this week. And he's going to kind of connect the, the last week with this week and what we're going to study. And we're going to see very clearly that because God's love for his children is so great, it should drive us to love others. So with that in mind, we're going to open our Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, we'll be focusing on verses 11 through 24 this morning. This is week 7 of what we're calling our Authentic Faith Sermon Series. And in this sermon series, we're examining our walk with Christ. We're examining our heart, we're examining our lives, and we're understanding as we study more and more that if we are truly followers of Jesus Christ, then there should be evidence of a changed life. We should bear fruit. And so the question I've been asking week after week after week, I'm going to ask it again this morning, it's a question you need to consider, and it's a question you need to be very honest with yourself about when you answer it. Here's the question. Are you playing a game with God, or do you have authentic faith? And so we'll begin this morning in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. John just gives it to us very clearly right off the bat. Verse 12, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now John's going to give it to us very clearly. Right off the bat, with no question, with no ambiguity, he's going to be very clear with us in verse 11. Here's the first point I want to make that we need to understand. It's going to form a foundation for this sermon this morning. We need to love one another. That's what John says. Now, John is clear about this. There's no doubt he gives it to us in verse 11. In fact, this whole section, verse 11 through 24, is going to focus on not only God's love for us, but more specifically, our love for other people. And John says very straightforwardly, we need to love other people. Now, sometimes we have a difficulty in our Christian walk with making decisions about how we should respond in certain situations, don't we? And so maybe we're at work and somebody does something and we're not sure, should I, should I say something to this person or should I not say something? And if I choose to say something, what exactly should I say? How should I phrase and how should I respond? Or, or maybe if somebody does something, should I, should I do this or should I not do this? And how should, I, how should I respond in this situation? And sometimes it's difficult for us as believers to figure out exactly how we ought to act in all situations. But here's something we need to understand with certainty. Regardless of the situation we find ourselves in, we should always respond in love. Always. Whether you're speaking to someone, it should be in love. Whether you're responding to someone, it should be in love. No matter what you do as a believer, your life should be seasoned with love. Why? Because love is a universal language, isn't it? You can talk until you're blue in the face, but if you demonstrate to someone love, they understand exactly what you're talking about. See, love demonstrates to people exactly who Christ is in our lives and it demonstrates to them that we're interested in more than just saying the right words. We're interested in showing them the love of Christ. Now, we've seen this all through our study in 1 John. In fact, John talks about love in chapter 1. He talks about love in chapter 2. He talks about here in chapter 3, love. But we haven't just seen it in 1 John. We've seen it in other instances in the Bible. So, for example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, "...a new commandment that I give to you, love one another." 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Galatians chapter 5, verse 14 says this, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 39, Jesus replied when someone asked him, Lord, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. John says this is just a, this is just a real clear teaching of the Christian walk. It's a real clear picture of exactly who we ought to be. We ought to love other people. And the Bible bears that out over and over and over and over again. Martin Lloyd-Jones famous pastor in England in the 1900s, says this. I've got his quote up on the screen. He says, The world, in its darkness and blindness, still expects something different from the Christian. It expects to see something in the Christian community which no one else can show. So to the extent that we fail to practice and exemplify this great virtue, the whole testimony and witness of the church will will be correspondingly weak. See, John tells us it's a a picture of who Christ is in our lives when we love other people. And love is more than just saying things. It should lead us, of course, to action. Now, he tells us that we've heard about love from the beginning, and so we begin to think about all that God has done for us and all that God has loved us and the ways that God has loved us. And we, We think about the creation and how God provided for Adam and Eve in the garden. And how God provided food for them to eat and provided nourishment for them. And even when they had sinned, God loved us so much that he provided a savior for us. But John does something very interesting as he begins to talk about love. And he begins to talk about love from the beginning. He references a very interesting portion of scripture. He says, you you know we should love one another. We've, We've heard about love from the beginning. And then he delves into the story of Cain and Abel. Now you may remember Cain and Abel are from Genesis chapter 4. And they're the two sons of Adam and Eve and... They go out into the fields, into the farm, and they're tilling and growing and raising livestock. And then they both bring in this offering to the Lord. And the Bible says that the Lord looked upon Cain, upon Cain's offering with favor, but he looked upon excuse me, he looked upon Abel's offering with favor, but he looked upon Cain's offering for disfavor. And Cain got so upset. The Bible tells us, you remember the story. He murdered his brother. Now it's shocking to us. It's just very interesting to us that John is going to begin to speak about this idea of love. John is going to explain to us that we've known love from the beginning. And then John is going to delve into this passage of Scripture all of a sudden that reminds us of murder. Why would he do that? Well, verse 13 kind of clues us in because here's what John says. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, he said. And at this moment, thinking about Cain and Abel, we're surprised, right? Why would he talk about Cain and Abel in the midst of discussing love? Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. See, John said, here's the deal about love. Now, you you need to prepare yourselves for this. It's not simply that we should love other people. We have to be prepared to love other people, even in the midst of hate. You understand that? John says, it's really easy to love people when they love you back, right? We all, we're hugging and we're happy with one another, we're high-fiving, everybody loves. It's easy to love people in that context. It's very difficult to love others when they hate you. We're reminded of passages of Scripture when, when Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he's speaking directly to them, be on your guard. He's speaking to you, by the way, Christian, now. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, 
You will be brought before the governors and the kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. There's a famous, very famous part of the scripture in the gospels when Jesus has kind of been doing his ministry. He's been healing and doing all these miracles. And there comes this point when the crowds are getting larger and larger and larger. And Jesus says to these people, you know what? It's time for me to change. It's time for me to do something different. From this point forward, I've got to move to Jerusalem. And so we read in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, the Bible says, From that time forward, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. See, here's the thing that Christ understood very clearly. If you are really a follower of Jesus Christ, then the world's going to hate you. If you're really a follower of Jesus Christ, the world's going to look down upon you. And John says, you don't need to be surprised when you try to love people that you're not going to be able to love people in the midst of a bunch of love. You're going to have to learn to love people in the midst of hate. Now, we take a look at the history of Christianity down through the centuries. And we're reminded of all the people that have given their lives for Christ. And we can start naming all these martyrs. And we can think about Stephen in the book of Acts. And we can think about Polycarp in the early church. We can think about John Huss. John Wycliffe, the reformers. We could think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Nazi Germany in the 1940s and all these people that have died simply because of their beliefs. But here's what we do as believers. We take those people and we kind of put them in this category of people that lived sometime in history and gave their lives for Christ. And as amazing as those stories are, they don't really relate to us today, right? Because people aren't still dying for their faith. I mean, that's just the way things used to be. Well, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary did a study in 2010. Here's what they discovered. On average, 159,000 Christians worldwide are martyred for their faith every year. Now, if you break that down, that's roughly 438 Christians die every day because of their beliefs. Far from persecution being over, persecution is worse now than it's ever been in the history of the world. Now, we kind of live in a bubble here in America, don't we? We live in a bubble where we don't really see that persecution much, and unless we're kind of interested in learning more about it, we can live our entire lives and not really know that's going on. But if you lived in a Muslim country, if you surrounded yourself with unbelievers in other parts of the world, your choice to follow Christ would literally be a choice of life and death. Now, we're in our world today, isolated from much of that. But I want to warn you, believer, as I warn myself, as I study this passage of Scripture, those days may be one day coming again. And we may one day be faced with the real decision of, am I going to choose Christ and choose death? Or am I going to choose to forsake the things of the Lord and choose life? John says, you need to understand this idea of love. You need to be loving other people, but you better be prepared to love others even when they hate you. You say, well, that's difficult to do, Adam. <laughs> I need to know a little bit more about what John's talking about here. John's talking about love, and he's talking about love in the midst of hate, and he's talking about loving others above all things. But what exactly does he mean by love? Can you help me understand love a little bit more? Well, John gives us exactly what we're asking in verse 16. John says, you want to understand what love is? Great, this is what love is. Look at verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, 
Let us love not with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. So John gives us kind of the foundation first. We need to love one another. But here's the second point John makes. Our love should lead us to action. Our love should lead us to action. Real love requires action. Now, love is a difficult word sometimes for us to understand. It's a difficult word for us to define. And if I went around this congregation right now and I said, tell me what love is, we'd probably get a lot of different answers. So I spent some time this week reading about love and and researching love. And so I, I looked up the definition of love. And if you look up the definition in the dictionary of love, you get something pretty similar to this. Love is an intense feeling of deep affection. Now, we understand that love is certainly emotional and there are feelings involved in love. We wouldn't minimize that. Of course, that's true. But it's interesting when you study a biblical definition of love, emotions are not really a part of that. In fact, if you go back and look at the original Greek, the word is agape. And there are different words in the Greek for love. But this particular context, it's agape. What agape means in the Greek is an unconditional, self-sacrificing love. John says it's not really about emotion, although that's certainly part of it. It's more about your willingness to unconditionally love others and give yourself for them. That's kind of what love is. Now, this is not a sermon on marriage. I'm I'm not going to spend a a lot of time talking about marriage because that's not the point of this text. But I just wonder how many of our marriages could be saved if each spouse loved like that. See, marriages for so many people become this. What can I get out of this? What are you going to give to me? <laughs> and when you quit giving to me what I need, I'm out of here, right? That's not what love is. John says real love is when you unconditionally give. When you sacrifice yourself. I just wonder if every husband and every wife began to live their lives like this, what it would do to our marriages. I think we'd see a revolution <laughs> in the way our marriages function in this world. But John says there's some clear things we need to understand here. If we're going to talk about true love and what true love is, we need to take a look at Christ because he's our example, right? And so verse 16 speaks about Jesus Christ and it says that Jesus laid down his life for us and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. And we read that and we understand who Christ was and we understand what Christ accomplished, but we try to put ourselves in this context and if we're honest with each other, in the context of where we are right now, most of us don't have a choice to lay down our lives for Christ, do we? It's not as if you're going to go to work in the morning and have to make a real decision. Am I going to lay my life down for Christ or am I not? We don't, we don't live in that kind of a world right now. Other people do. But in the context of where we are, we don't have to make those decisions. Now, we understand that Christ gave a lot for us. I mean, the fact that he stepped down, of heaven, stepped down out of heaven to this world, to this sinful world, is just incredible to even understand. But he gave his time, he gave his energy, literally his blood, sweat, and tears. He gave his life ultimately for us. And John said, he's our example. But how do we love people if we don't necessarily give our lives for them? What are some ways we can begin to love people right now, actively and practically in life? Well, how about the way you treat other people? Demonstrates your love to them. How about the way we serve other people? Demonstrates our love to them. How about the amount of time we choose to give to other people? That will demonstrate our love to that person. And then John does something very interesting in verse 17. I could just envision him understanding that there will come a time maybe where there are believers that don't, don't live under persecution or aren't living in a time where they give their lives physically. And they begin to wonder, what are some things I can begin to do to love other people really through my actions? And so he gives it to us in verse 17. Now, as an American, <laughs> you ought to circle verse 17. Here's what it says. If anyone has material possessions... 
and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Now let me give you some facts about American wealth. According to the Department of Health and Human Services in 2010, the poverty line for an individual was $10,800. $10,800 in 2010. Compared to the rest of the world, if you're living in poverty in the United States, you are in the top 14% of global income. So if you're at the poverty line, you make more than 86% of the world. Now watch this. If, if that's not enough, if your family income is more than 50000 a year, that's most people. That's combined now, family income. If your family income is more than $50,000 a year, you make more than 99% of the world. You are in the top 1% wealthiest people in the world. So I think we can say with certainty that a congregation like this, a church like this, we are probably in the 95 percentile, somewhere in there. We make more than 95% of the world. Now here's what that means. Let's, let's drive the point home here. Let's be very clear about this. When John says in verse 17, if anyone has material possessions, guess what? He's talking to you. You understand that? It's easy for us to read this and go, well, that's a person in the first century and, you know, da-da-da. And all that's true. But John says, if you have material possessions, that's you. You cannot logically make an argument that you don't fall into this category based on where you live right now. Everybody in this room, compared to the rest of the world, has material possessions. Now, here's what John says. Let's change the wording a little bit. Verse 17. When you see a person in need, but you don't help them, how can the love of God be in you? Wow. That's convicting, isn't it? John says, if you have material possessions, and oh, by the way, we all do, and you see somebody in need, if you really want to love somebody with your actions, you need to give to help them. You need to sacrifice in such a way that you can minister to their lives. Now, here's what John doesn't say. It's just enough to think about doing it. That's good enough. <laughs> you don't have to really do anything. Let's just go to lunch and we'll just talk about it and what we could be doing and how we should be doing it and we'll feel better about ourselves and we'll forget about it and that's good enough. That's not what John says. John says it's good enough to go home and just kind of ponder it with your family and maybe make some decisions and never follow through. That's not what John says. John says you need to actively live out your faith. When you see somebody in need, you need to help them. You need to have pity on them. So here's what a lot of families do. My family included. And by the way, I told our other two services, I'm standing right here with you when we talk about this. We see these passages of Scripture and we say, you know, John's right. God's love for me is so incredible. He desires for me to love other people. How can I love other people? Well, through my actions. He says to me in verse 17, here's a tangible way to do it, to find somebody in need and to give them something. So here's what we're going to do. At Christmas, we're going to sponsor a family. We're going to take up money in our Sunday school class or maybe individual we're going to give money and we're going to buy presents for that person. That's fantastic. We need to do a lot more of that. Or we're going to buy a turkey at Thanksgiving. We're going to do a nice dinner for these people. We're going to take food to their house. We should do that. We should do a lot more of that. Or you say school's going to start up in the fall and when it does we're going to provide some backpacks and some school supplies for these kids. And we're going to help these. Absolutely. We should do all these things. But here's what John doesn't say. John doesn't say have pity on these people once a year. <laughs> John doesn't say just do it when you feel like you ought to do it. The criteria for helping other people is when you see them in need, then you need to help. That's extremely challenging to me because I see people in need all the time. 
Now, I understand that there are problems and there are people that scam us, and I, I get all that. And there are all kinds of things you could discuss, but here's the bottom line. We ought to be helping people. The love of Christ ought to be swelling up in our hearts so much that we literally want to give possessions to people so that they can understand who Christ is and they can experience his love and his mercy and his grace. I'm so excited about what God is doing in this church right now and where we're going. I'm so excited about how he's stirring in the hearts. I'm excited about our missions movement and where we've gone already this year. We're just looking at some numbers this week. We've already sent over 50 people overseas to do mission work. That number is going to go up when we go to Zambia and Romania and Mexico. And we've constructed houses to help these people. We've provided school supplies. We've done VBS. We've loved so many people. We're going to love so many more people in the name of Christ. But here's what we need to be careful of. It's very easy for us to look at all we've accomplished and get complacent, isn't it? Oh, well, we've already been to three or four countries and we've already built some houses and we saw all these people come to know Christ. Let's take the rest of the year off. (laughs) That's not what John says. John says, you need to celebrate the past, but you need to look with anticipation to the future. Because we've got to keep moving, folks. We've got to keep going. And we press on and on and on with local missions and international missions and giving money for those in need and all the things that Christ has called us to do. Why? Because we need to tangibly demonstrate our love for these people in the name of Jesus Christ. We've got to love them when no one else will. So John kind of summarizes now for us in verse 18. I love what he does right here. It's, it's kind of like he's, he's just kind of hammering us. Bam, right? He's kind of hammering us over there. If you've got possessions, you need to be helping people. That's hard for us, isn't it? That's a challenging thing. I'm going to be very honest with you. When I read that, that challenges me. So he's just challenged us very greatly. And then look how he begins verse 18. Dear children, <laughs> I'm going to hammer you with this idea. It's going to be tough, but I still love you. I still care about you, dear children. Let us not love with words or speech. In other words, it's not good enough just to talk or to think or to discuss it at lunch, but with actions and in truth. God says, here's the bottom line. You talk about it all you want to, but don't claim to know Christ and not love other people through your actions. That's what he's saying. That's very difficult and convicting for us to read. Now look at what he does in verse 21 as we kind of finish up this passage of Scripture. Dear friends, if our... Hearts do not condemn us. We have confidence before God. And listen to what he says in verse 22. And receive from him anything we ask. It's a very interesting passage of scripture. Because we keep his commands and we do what pleases him. This is his command to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. See, John says you need to love other people. You need to love them with your actions. And the third thing he says is when we truly love other people, it brings us to confidence before the Lord. John says when you love other people, when you love them in the name of Jesus Christ, when you truly love them, when you truly give of yourself, that will bring confidence before the Lord. And we can go to God knowing that when we ask him anything, he's going to give us what we ask. And that's a very interesting idea. Because there are people in our world that will read that passage of Scripture about Christ giving us whatever we ask, and they'll begin to say things like this. Well, that's, that's great. I didn't know that about prayer. I think I want a new car. So I'm going to begin to pray for a new car. I want a new Lexus or Cadillac. That's what I want, right? Or I want a new house. I'm going to, get, I'm going to pray for a new house. Or, you know, I want a million dollars to just instantly just appear in my bank account tomorrow morning. I want to wake up and check my online account. I want there to be a million dollars in my account. Now, God may do all those things for you. 
But here's the problem. We kind of get into this name it, claim it type of gospel where I just name what I want and I'll claim it and God will give it to me. And we back it up with passages like Psalm chapter 37, verse 4, when the Bible says, the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. And we say, see, there it is again, right? I mean, whatever I want, God will give me that. I just got to pray for it, right? But here's what we have to understand as we read other passages of Scripture. If you were to read through that entire chapter of Psalm chapter 37, it would say to you that instead of asking for the things that you want, you need to trust in the Lord. You need to delight in the Lord. You need to commit your ways to the Lord. You need to be still before the Lord. You need to wait for the Lord. You need to obey the Lord. You need to seek the Lord in all things. And here's the interesting thing. When we focus on the Lord and commit our lives to Him and obey Him, His desires become our desires. You understand that? He begins to mold our hearts. And He begins to shape our hearts in such a way that we don't even really care about what we used to care about. And his desires become our desires. And so we pray for the desires of our heart because they're desires of his heart as well. That doesn't come when you're selfish and when you think only of yourself. That comes when you truly seek the Lord and you truly love others and you truly want to do everything that he's called you to do. John Stott, a very famous theologian, said it like this. John does not mean to imply that God hears and answers our prayers merely for the subjective reason that we have a clear conscience and an uncondemning heart. There is an objective moral reason, namely because we keep his commandments and more generally do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Obedience is the indispensable condition of answered prayer. John Stott in... John, the author of 1 John, the Gospel of John, says, listen, if you want to hear from the Lord, if you want to have confidence that your prayers are going to be answered, you need to follow what the Lord says to follow. You need to do what the Lord says to do. You need to love other people in the name of Jesus Christ. You need to give of yourself. When you do those things, you can be confident that the Lord's going to use you and that the Lord's going to speak to you and through you. But here's the most interesting part about this whole passage of Scripture. John has kind of built this interesting picture, this building of love and who ought to love and why we ought to love and how we ought to love and how we can tangibly love and all the things he's talking about about love. And all these things are crucial, but he summarizes it for us in verse 23, and this is the foundation. Here's what he says. This is the command. You ready? To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. That's the picture of salvation for us. John says we need to love other people. We need to do it built upon the foundation of Christ. It begins with Jesus Christ. And if that foundation isn't there, we can't love in the name of Jesus. We can't give in the name of Jesus. Christ won't love us and do incredible things through us. And so I've challenged you every week. I'm going to continue to challenge you all through the remainder of this sermon series. How's your faith with the Lord? Are you being serious with Him and seeking His will? Are you interested in knowing Him more? Are you are you're interested, as we, as we saw in Psalm 37, of trusting Him and delighting Him and committing yourself to Him and, and waiting on Him? Or are you interested instead of doing the things you want to do? Because God says to you very clearly, I've got an incredible desire for you to serve me. I've got incredible life ahead for you, a life of glory and honor and love and excitement to do the things I've called you to do. But it starts with a foundation in Christ. It starts with committing your life to Him to repenting of your sins, to trusting in Him as your Lord and Savior. So I'll finish the way I finished every week 
in this study with this simple question that you need to answer, and you need to answer it in your heart. Are you playing a game with God? Or do you have authentic faith? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the clarity of your word. Lord, it is so crystal clear and it speaks to us in such a powerful way. Lord, help us not to ignore it. Help us, Lord, to allow it to transform our hearts and transform our lives. Lord, may we be your servants. Lord, may we, may we love others. May we love other people even when they're unlovable, Father. Not through our own power, but through the Holy Spirit working in us. May we give of ourselves in such a way to bring you honor and glory. And then, Father, when we, when we love and give and serve, we know that we have confidence before you that you're going to work in our hearts, that you're going to answer our prayers for your honor and for your glory. Lord, I, I pray for the one this morning, if there's someone here that hasn't accepted you, that's been playing games with you, that doesn't understand faith, Lord, I pray you'd speak to their heart very clearly. Today would be the day they repent of their sins and accept you as their Lord and Savior for your honor and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.